we are in John's gospel. We are going to be looking at the first half of John 17. John chapter 17. In, in my family growing up, we had these sort of, sort of rituals that we'd watch the same sort of shows always together and We'd always watch Murder, She Wrote. That was like one of our family's thing. We'd, uh, we'd watch I Love Lucy. That was a, a go-to. But in this, this isn't going to make any sense, and this illustration might just fall completely flat. I'm well aware of this, but I'm, I'm going all in on this. Um, we watched as a family always the Miss America pageant, okay? <laughs> we just did. Um, and if you didn't know, you know, you got each state is represented by a woman, and each woman had a platform, right? She had a platform. If she were to win, this is how she would make the world a better place, right? You know, platforms like world peace, that's easy to accomplish and those sorts of things. But, but really when you think of what a platform is, it's looking at the world, seeing what's broken in the world, and then saying, this is what I long to try to attempt to fix in the world. That's what a platform is, right? This is what's broken. And this is the thing that I want to spend my time seeking to fix. Things like maybe disabilities, mental illness, hunger, educational reform. They're all really good things. But when you look out on the world, what's broken in the world, what needs help and fixing, what do you long to see fixed? Now, maybe you're not like the most like intuitive person, introspective, and you're like, I have no idea. Well, let me give you just an encouragement. This is one way to kind of think through what is your deepest longing or what are the longings in your heart that you want to see fixed? Look at your prayer life. When you're alone with God, when your mind just sort of drifts into various topics, things in the world, where does your mind drift most often? What are the things you pray for most? My guess is, those are the things that you long to see fixed in the world. Our prayer lives tell us what we long for. Such that if we were to, and this is a little creeper, creepy, but if you could eavesdrop on each other's prayers, you would be able to find out within a week or two weeks or a month through the sort of repetition of various prayers, you could see what we're longing for. The things that we're putting our hope in. Just by nature of the repetition of our prayers. Now, I wouldn't want you to do that on my prayer lift. I think I'd be a little embarrassed. Can you imagine if you could eavesdrop on God's prayer life? What do you think God prays about? What are the longings in his heart? John 17 is an opportunity for all of us to eavesdrop on the incarnate God and his prayer life, such that we can kind of learn what it is that he prays about because he's going to pray about a deep longing in the heart of God for something very particular, something to be fixed in the world. So this morning we've arrived at John 17. John, when you just think of it as a book, structurally, you've got the prologue in chapter 1, then you've got chapter uh, chapter 2 to chapter 12, which is the seven signs all kind of pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And then you've got chapter 18, 19, 20, and 21, which is all about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the middle, 
you've got this interesting section from 13 to chapter 17. And Jesus is teaching, but he doesn't just teach. He teaches in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and then he prays. So we talk about the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you grew up in a tradition where you memorize the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, right? That's the Lord's Prayer. Well, really in a technical sense, that's actually the disciples' prayer, right? That's Jesus teaching the disciples how to pray. John 17 is actually the Lord's Prayer. This is Jesus praying for his people, for the world, for the church. And as we look at this prayer, and we're going to look at kind of two-thirds of it, we're going to really see the heart of God. Um, But before I read a section of it, this text is divided up easily into three parts. We're going to look at the first two structural parts of this prayer. So in verse 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. Then in verse 6 to 19, Jesus prays for the disciples. And then in verse 20 through verse 26, he prays for us. He prays for the church. So this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' prayer for himself and for his disciples. And then, Lord willing, next week, we'll look at the last section of this prayer. Turn with me to John chapter 17. I'm going to read the first five verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, or you could think, and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The big idea that I always give you that I should have given you before I read the text is simply this, and it should be on the screen. The longing of Jesus is to manifest his glory, point one, through us, point two. So Jesus prays for himself in verse one to verse five. Now, that in and of itself, I, I almost, as I was meditating on this, I just wanted to just really preach an entire sermon on verse one. Just the astonishing reality that Jesus prays. I mean, there, there are weeks where I'm like, I'm really busy. Ain't nobody got time to pray. And if anyone could say that, I mean, just think of what Jesus, how he, he's about to die. Think of, think of all the things that are preoccupying Jesus. And yet Jesus Pray. It's astonishing. So Jesus in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16, he teaches. And now in chapter 17, he prays. Now, where did Jesus get this model? Teaching and prayer or word and prayer? Well, this is the model in all the Bible. This is, this is how prophetic ministry works. God's word and prayer. Just think of prophets like, Moses, think of prophets like Elijah, think of prophets like Jeremiah, the minor prophets. We we usually think of the prophets like this. They talk to the people about God. That's prophetic ministry. But just read it. I I tell you, not only do they do that, they would 
talk to the people about God, but they would talk to God about people. Word and prayer. Both are necessary. We, we can't be a word-centered church or we're a spirit-prayer-centered church. Rubbish. It's, it's both and. Both are necessary. J- just think of how the church was started in the book of Acts. Y- you've got this monumental pastoral dilemma and problem, this, this huge feeding pro- program that's going on, right? So, so, so the church could have been easily turned into world vision, but they're like, no, we need to take care of these widows and orphans who've lost their jobs because they put their trust and faith in Jesus. But we got to do something. And so the apostles say, we got to elect some deacons because we need to give ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. In other words, they needed to tell people about God and they needed to talk to God about people. And Jesus models this for us. Isn't that just simple? That's how the church is going to be built as we tell people about God and then we talk to God about people. Word and prayer together. Pretty simple. Well, Jesus prays. And really in these five verses, as Jesus prays for himself, there's one request, one prayer. You see it in verse one. You see it in verse five. He prays the same thing using almost the same language. The same, um, the, the same truth is in verse one and five. It brackets the entire section of Jesus' prayer for himself. He says, glorify your son. Then down in verse five, he says, glorify me. So Jesus' prayer is, Father, glorify me. It's an interesting prayer. Now, glory or to glorify, it's one of those churchy words, right? When Early on in my, when I was early, uh, Early when I was a Christian, or even before that, I hated these like churchy words because they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like people just sounded pious and they're like, I, I am meant to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I'd be like, I don't even know what that means. And so we use these kind of this, this language of like glory and glorify in our prayers. But we ever just stood back and be like, well, what does this even mean? Like, what does it mean to glorify? Or what does it mean that Jesus is saying, glorify me? Well, the word just means like weightiness, right? It means Jesus is saying, may I become weighty and supreme. But I think actually a story in the Old Testament is really, really helpful. So there's this great story. It's a very familiar story for with many of you, but it's the story of Moses in the Exodus on Mount Sinai. So it's Exodus 32, and he goes down, and the people, they're sinning, they're worshiping a golden calf, and... You know, he goes down and he speaks to the people about God and then he goes back up to speak to God about the people, right? That's Moses, Exodus 32, 33, 34. But then Moses says, God, he has this petition. He has this request. He says, God, I want to see your glory. Isn't that his prayer? So what's he asking when he says, I want to see your glory? Well, he's saying that he wants to see God. But really what he's saying is he wants to see the invisible God be made visible. He wants to know who God is. And so when he prays that, God then speaks and says that famous thing, you know, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. God displays who he is. So glory isn't something we give to God. Fundamentally, glory is something God gives to us. Or we could say it this way, glory is the unveiling of who God is. That's what glory is. That's what Moses was praying. 
And so when Jesus is saying, Father, glorify me, he's saying, the world, and just think of the book of of John, so many people are just blind. They don't understand who Jesus is. Jesus is just praying, Father, unveil who I am. Unveil what I'm about to do. Unveil my character. Unveil that I am the Messiah to the world. Take the blinders off of their eyes so that they can understand who I am in my love and my grace and in my mercy. That's his prayer. But it's not just like a a general prayer for glory. It's not just a a general prayer that they'd know generally that God is good or glorious. There's There's a particular aspect of Christ's glory that he's praying would be manifest. Verse 1, Jesus says that the hour has come, which in John means the hour of his death and resurrection. And so the hour has come for him to be lifted up by being crushed, by dying on a cross for sinners. And then look at verse 2 and 3. Jesus then elaborates on this truth and says that that all authority has been given to him. All authority. But what's he going to do with that authority? He's going to use that authority for the purpose of giving eternal life to all those that the Father has given the Son. And notice that this eternal life isn't like the, the reason why or the greatness of this eternal life isn't like the endlessness of days. It's not like quantity of days that make this so great. It's quality. It's the quality because you are now bound up in God through Christ. Because you can now know Christ. So it says there, and this is eternal life. What is it? That you might know, that they might know you. So Christ is praying that his glory would be displayed so that people would find eternal life by knowing who God is. Particularly knowing that Jesus is the Messiah who has come to die to purchase sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we can sort of summarize this prayer this way. Christ's prayer, he's praying for the cross. He's praying that the veil on the world's eyes would fall such that people would see the beauty of the cross and that they can find restoration forgiveness, and redemption in Jesus Christ in what he's about to do when he dies. That's his prayer. Glorify me. Now, maybe you're here and you're like, I don't know if I know God. Or maybe you're thinking, all my life I've been playing hide and go seek with God and he's really good at it. Well, this morning I'm here to tell you, this is really, really clear. You can, at this moment, Right now, know God. Not exhaustively, but intimately and truly. You can know God. And if you want to say, well, how do I know God? Look through the mirror, look through the portal of God's word and see Christ lifted up on a cross, dying for sinners out of love to purchase a people for himself. That's how you know God. You want to see what he looks like? You you want to see what what kind of heart and what what affections he has for the world. Look at the cross and you'll see God. But then for, for, for those who are like, oh, I know God. 
Is this the longing of your life? The, the, the longing to glorify Christ, that Christ would get gloried in the sense that Christ would be displayed, that the, in sense, invisible God would be made visible through your life and through your words in every sphere of your life. From your marriage, is that your longing? When you sit in your prayer life, that your marriage would unveil and display God in your interactions with your spouse? With your kids, as you interact with them, as you shepherd them, as you parent them, that Christ would be displayed to them in words, as you teach them, and in your interactions with them. When you go to work, hanging out with your coworkers, is that your longing when you pray for them? That in your interactions, that Christ would be displayed, that he would manifest his love in and through you, through your words, and through your life. I think often we think of our prayers like a shopping list, right? We look out in the world and we're like, well, I want that, I want that, and I want that. So prayer is a time for me to ask for this, that, and the other, and hope that I can bend God's will to my will. But ultimately, that's not what prayer is, is it? Prayer isn't bending God's will to meet our will. Prayer is bending our will to God's. And we are, it's really, really clear what the will of God is in this prayer that Jesus prays, that Christ would be manifest. Christ would be unveiled to the world. So is that your longing? To pray that in whatever sphere of your life, Christ would be made known. That's the first prayer. Christ prays for himself, glorify me. But now second, he turns and prays for his disciples. And we'll notice he prays, once again, just kind of one prayer, but in different sort of fashions. So the prayer for his disciples is for protection. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in the truth that I come from you, and that they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them and have not, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask of you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus now moves on to not just praying for himself, but now he's praying for his disciples and you might wonder, well, how do we know it's his disciples? Well, look down at verse 
9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So he's contrasting, he's saying, I'm not praying for the world, which isn't to say that Jesus doesn't love the world. He's saying, the locus of this and the purpose of this prayer is much more, it's, it's smaller. And so you got to kind of step back and say, so who is this them that he's praying for? You just got to kind of keep reading. Verse 12, the them are those that Jesus was with that he keeps except for one, the son of destruction, which we know has left the scene, Judas. Verse 11, I do not pray for these only, but for those who will believe in me through the apostles' world. So if you go down to verse 20, there's another shift, and now we know that there's a broader prayer, and it says, verse 20, which I just said, I do not ask for these only, the 11, but for those who will believe in me through their word, through the apostolic ministry in the book of Acts. So hopefully I prove that to you. This is a, a prayer that Jesus is praying for the 11 at the beginning of their ministry. And so he prays for his followers. He prays for his disciples. He prays for those who are closest to him. And that's how, how he describes them in verses 6 to verse 10. He describes them as people. This is really interesting. He describes them as people who have kept his word. And you're like, at least I am this week, I was like, the disciples? Heck no. Like, definitely not them. They are the ones that kept, I mean, three times it talks about them as those who heard the word and kept the word. Well, in a sense, because again, there's a contrast here, as the, the world has rejected Jesus and his word, but they're still with Jesus, aren't they? They're still walking with Jesus. And so in a true sense, they have kept his word. They've stuck with him. I think this is a really good description of a Christian, is it not? Those who have kept God's word. A Christian is he or she who has heard the word of God, listened to the word of God, applied the word of God. Now, as we keep reading, it's really clear what Jesus is praying for his disciples. Look there in verse 11 once again. He says, I'm no longer in the world. Once again, he's talked time and time again in this high priest of prayer. Jesus is leaving. He's going to keep saying, I'm leaving this world. I'm not of this world, but they are in the world, these disciples. He's saying, I'm coming to you, Holy Father, right? Jesus is ascending after his death and resurrection. So he prays for his followers because he's about to leave. And Jesus then asks God, that he would keep them in his name. Now what's he saying? He's saying, I want you to keep them loyal to you. I want to keep them tethered to your word. I want to keep them in your will, in your character. And he goes on to say that when Christ was there, Christ himself protected them. Christ himself guarded them. Christ himself impacted them in some Amazing, transformative ways. But he's leaving now. And so he prays to God that God would protect them. And you just kind of keep reading and you get a sense about what this is saying. That he would protect them. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Right? Jesus is leaving the world, but they're not coming with him, are they? They get to stay in the world because they've got work to do. I pray for them. And ask you not to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. 
So Christ is praying for the disciples' protection. They've got work to do. He's leaving the world. He's leaving them in the world. And he asks God, protect them. Because he knows that they live in a world bent against them. They live in an evil world ruled by an evil dictator named Satan. So, this last section really is, I just want to kind of, kind of ask journalistically three questions about this. What is this protection that Jesus is praying? How are they going to then be protected? And then third, why do they need protecting? And in many sense, though this applies to the disciples, this also applies to us as well. So what is this protection? Well, I think sometimes we pray when, when we're praying for others, when, we, when we're praying for um, our children, when we're praying for loved ones, we pray for protection, don't we? And what we mean is for physical protection. We're praying for comfort. We're praying that they're not harmed. We're praying that they don't die. We're praying that they come back in one piece. That's not what Jesus is praying. Jesus is not praying for physical protection. And we know that because all these disciples die. They're all martyred. And they all have a life that none of us would want. Hard life. So it's not that. It's not Jesus praying for a protection against discomfort or death or martyrdom. It's something else. Really what he's praying for is, he's praying as they live in the world that they protected from the world and the lies of the world and the encroachment of the world. You see, all sin lies. All sin lies. Sin basically says, oh, it's just a, it's just a little sin. Don't worry about it. Right? Sin says like, oh, I know it says, but did God really say that? Don't be such a Puritan. Don't, don't, don't be, that's just legalistic. Like, do you really, do you really have to live like that? Right? All sin does that to us. Like, sin comes to us and doesn't say like, hey, this is how you screw up your life in joy. That's not how sin comes to us. Sin says, this, if you do this, this will bring you happiness. This will fulfill your longings. And so sin comes to us as it lies, and Jesus knows that the world is going to come to the disciples and seek to deceive them. Jesus spoke to them. Jesus gave their marching orders, and he knows that they're going to seek to give an alternative message. And so he prays that they would be protected, protected from the world and the lies of the world. And then you just kind of keep reading and you realize, now, how are we going to do that? How do we protect ourselves from the lies of the world? Well, go down to verse 17. This is how. Sanctify them. Set them apart. How? How are you going to protect them and set them apart from the world while they live in the world? Your word is truth. You see that there? So as you live in the world, but are not of the world, how do you stay faithful to God's word while living in the word world? Man, a lot of word worlds. You got to be careful here, right? Well, it's the word, right? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So the way that you are protected as you live in the world is through God's word. By studying God's word, examining God's word, and then applying God's word to your life. All right, let me, let me try to illustrate it this way. S- some of you have uh, 
work uh, and, and bosses and managers that make you go to these like teamwork seminars. I'm, I'm guessing some of you have been to these things. And so you go to these teamwork seminars and they pair you up randomly with someone. This is like my nightmare. This is like my least favorite thing in the world. So they pair you up with some stranger and they say, all right, guess what? You got to get to get, be teammates for the day. And I think I should have called them sick. But, but then they say, okay, one of you puts on a blindfold. And the other one stands about 20 feet away. All right. And then the person puts on a blindfold and then the organizer puts all these like booby traps on the floor. Right. And so then this other teammate just stands there and their job is to tell you how to get around the booby traps to get to the finish line. You guys ever done this before? It's horrible, but it serves a point. And so you're like, don't go there. Don't go there. Step over there. You're almost there. Just keep going. And the entire time there's all these other voices going on. And the point is you're supposed to just listen to the voice of your teammate. See how God's word works? Just like that. You've got all these voices in the world. All these voices crying out to you. Go this way. Go that way. But then there's the word of God that says, this is where happiness is. This is where joy is. All these, all this, these, these voices cry out, this is where true happiness comes. And then God's word says, no, Jesus is not some cosmic killjoy. He even says in here that he has come to bring joy to its fullest. Jesus doesn't want to kill your joy. He wants to maximize our joy. And so he says, I'm well aware that you want to go left or right, but just listen to my voice. Crowd out all those other voices. Study my word, and you will have life and joy. And so he prays that they would be protected by being sanctified by the truth. Your word is truth. But there's one more. So that's kind of how. Why does he pray? Why does he pray for their protection? Why does he pray for the protection of his disciples? And we could just apply it to all of our lives. Well, it has to do with the mission. I think there's probably two temptations in every Christian's life. To either compromise to the world or pretend that you're not of this world and you know, hide out in some spiritual bunker and wait for the world to just go to hell in a handbasket, right? You either become a glutton and consume the world and say, I'm just going to enjoy everything the world has. Or you just separate from the world and say, I don't need to participate in this world. I don't need to. And yet Jesus says, I'm leaving. You're staying. You've got work to do. I'm sending you on a mission to proclaim the gospel about my life, death, and resurrection to unveil the invisible God and I'm going to use your entire lives and the worst thing you can do is to not do anything or to completely look like the world. So don't try to win the world by looking like the world, but neither try to win the world by not being in the world. And so he prays. I've got work for you to do. And the easiest thing you can do to shipwreck your life is compromise in one of those two ways. I think when it comes to a church, perhaps the greatest cancer in every church is one thing. It's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, I think, is perhaps one of the most cancerous aspects of any sin manifest in a church. 
Because hypocrisy says, is a parading of, of my spiritual virtue when I'm living differently. It's promoting on paper orthodoxy. Christ is supreme in my life. But if you looked at your life, you're like, no, he's not. No, hypocrisy says one thing and does another. Hypocrisy says, oh, God's, I'm all about God's word, but I just never open it myself. Hypocrisy says, I am dedicated, dedicated to the church, but I never show up to church. Right? We, we come up with all of the different things that hypocrisy looks like and manifests, but it's so deadly because it's a parading of truth while not living out the truth. And Jesus is praying here that as they live in the world, that they wouldn't be hypocrites of the world, that they'd be protected from all, all the different voices that are crying out to them, proclaiming, go this way, go that way, and saying, no, be faithful. I've got work for you to do. So what is it that we have to do? I mean, I have, when I look at my week, I have a thousand things I have to do every week that we just have to do. We got to accomplish. You know, you got to cook food. You got you to clean. You got to do laundry. You got to do a thousand things. But fundamentally, what is your life about? Is it about knowing Christ and making him known? Is that the longing of your heart, that the, that the beat of your heart is that within every relationship, within your neighborhood, within your work, within all of your friendships, you're thinking through and praying through and praying about how do I maximize my joy by not only knowing Christ, but making him known wherever he sends me. That's what he prays for his disciples. He's going to send them on the gnarliest adventure ever. And he knows that the way to shipwreck that is through the hypocrisy of compromise. And, and we know that, right? I mean, just think of all of the, the pastors who morally fail. It's not just sad because they sinned. It's sad because it tarnishes the gospel, does it not? Because this guy stood up for years and decades and proclaimed, Christ is glorious, sin is bad, and this sin is really, really bad. Don't do it. And he's saying that all the while he's participating in. Do you know what that looks like to the world? And this really is discipleship, I think. Discipleship is, in one sense, weeding out all of our hypocrisy, because we're all hypocrites. We all are. We all talk better than we act. So this is not a call to perfection. This is a call to say that as we live out our lives, as we disciple one another, one of our jobs as a church communally is to weed out our hypocrisy, to take the word of God and our lives and say, they don't match up. And when that happens, we don't just say, well, chuck the word. Or we don't just say, I need to hide. It's in the moment that we say, thank God for the gospel that we can run to him in grace and find grace and mercy and start again. So do you pray for one another like that? Let me just encourage you, as you pray through the membership directory, as you pray for your family and your spouse and your neighborhood and your evangelistic relationships, pray that Christ is known. Pray that in one sense, the glory that you've received in your union with Christ would be made visible to others in greater and greater degrees. And sometimes the greatness of God's glory in Christ is revealed when we really screw up. 
I've learned that my best evangelism is when I'm confessing sin, right? When, when, when I am anxious and I have to ask for forgiveness. I, I, this happened literally like a week ago. Um, I caught myself two weeks ago telling someone that I'm really, really chill. <laughs> Nothing really gets me. And then I took my children to California and my wife to California. And I'm the type of person that said, we're going to save $100 and I'm going to take my four kids and say, we're not going to check bags. You're going to carry on all your bags, including my four-year-old, because that's how I roll. That's how the Brookers roll. And so here we are in Seattle with all of us carrying luggage through a 30-minute TSA. And I could tell you this, I was the biggest hypocrite. There was nothing chill about me. And then a child has to go to the bathroom, and I'm literally like, Lord, I just want to go home right now. Like, I don't want to. Now, what do I do? I'm saying, oh, I'm really, really chill. Nothing gets me on. I don't, I don't struggle with anxiety or worry. And then all of a sudden, I'm just like, done. My preaching didn't match my practice. Well, I think it's a great opportunity to ask for forgiveness, is it not? It's a great opportunity to say, yeah, daddy was not very patient in this moment. Daddy sinned, and daddy needs the gospel. I often think my greatest lessons that I teach are not in the good times, not when I do things right, they're when I get things wrong. Because that's where Christ, in the darkness of sin, in the darkness of my weakness, Christ is most glorified in those moments because his love is seen to a greater degree, is it not? So you pray for opportunities to make Christ known, or to know Christ more. Like, I could talk about my wife or my children better than anyone in this room. Why? Because I know them better. So to the extent that we know God more, we will, in love, be transformed to make him known more through our lives. This week, let me just encourage you, read John 17 again. Like, slowly, and meditate on Christ's prayer and you will be well served. Pray, pray that Christ would be glorified, that your entire life, when you wake up and when you go to bed, centers around Christ, even in your confession of sin.